Good evening. Tonight's reading is taken from Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, Uni Church. It's great to be back with you, even in this uh, digital format. Uh, as Maddie says, we're working through uh, the questions that have been raised in our Questions from Life series. And tonight, we're considering the question, do we need God to be good? Or to put it another way, do we need God to tell us what is good? We've been working through uh, big questions for the last couple of weeks. We've looked at how our actions, our works, affect our standing before God. We've looked at what the Bible says about women. We've looked at the relationship between science and faith. We've looked at whether or not we can trust the Bible. Uh, and that just this morning, Trevor helped us think through the relationship between suffering, the reality of suffering, and the reality of God. And now, this is our last in the Questions from Life series, and it's a pretty big question, and it's quite a complex question. We're considering this topic, this area of morality. Can there actually be objective right and wrong, objective morality, without the belief in God? In other words, do we need God to tell us what is good. It's a question lots of people have been asking for a long time. For the last century or so, it's become a very big philosophical question. As more and more people identify as non-religious, as more and more people identify as atheist, the question, how do we know what is right and wrong, becomes more and more important. It's a question that's being asked more and more, not just because people's beliefs have changed, but because they've seen in the world around them, lots of non-religious people do good things, and they've seen lots of religious people do bad things. Whether it was flying planes into the Twin Towers, or creating a culture of child abuse and cover-up, we don't have to think very hard, do we, to come up with examples of religious people, people who claim to know God, people who even claim to act on behalf of God, doing terrible, horrible things. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, who for decades has been held up as this sort of ideal moral person, a good person, famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, we're not actually sure whether or not Gandhi ever said that. It's one of those internet quotes that might actually have nothing to do with the person it's attributed to. But we understand the sentiment, don't we? Some people who claim to follow Jesus have done terrible things. And so, the question gets asked, understandably, do we really need God 
to be good? The answer, according to the Bible, is a resounding yes. We do need God to be good. We need God to tell us what is and isn't good. We need the creator of the universe to reveal to us what is in fact good and bad because we cannot in and of ourselves figure out what is right and wrong simply by looking at the world around us. As the creator, God is the one who has the right to tell us what is good and bad. As the creator, God determines what is right and what is wrong. Even more than that, God hasn't simply told us what is right and wrong. God has shown us right and wrong, and He's shown us that ultimately in the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Last week in our morning service, we were considering the question of science and God, and we saw that humanity can see the glory of God and the genius of God in creation. That much is obvious. The world around us declares His glory and genius. But the world around us, creation, cannot tell us why God created the world. And the world around us ultimately cannot tell us what is right and wrong. To understand those things, to understand meaning, to understand morality, ultimately, we need to hear from God. And so that's what we're going to do this evening. We've already done that, as Catherine read to us, and we're going to look at that passage in a little bit more detail. However, before we get there, before we look at that psalm, Psalm 113, I want to briefly examine two other supposed sources of morality, the other ways that people have argued for and tried themselves to figure out what is good and bad. These are the two places that most people go to to determine morality, to figure out what is good and bad outside of God. And what I hope we'll see as we examine those areas, those sources of morality, is that ultimately only the God of the Bible can give us a solid, unshaken foundation to know what is right and wrong. But before we do any of that, I'm going to pray. And I would love it if you prayed with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. We thank you that you have revealed your will to us in the Bible. Help us now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, to see that ultimate goodness only comes from you. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. So there are two places that people look to find morality, to find right and wrong, good and bad, outside of God. There are only two places that you can go. And the first place that people go to try and define morality is outside of themselves. They look out to society to determine what is right and wrong. Some of you will know that I had the privilege uh, of spending four years uh, in Sydney, Australia. I was there from 2016 to 2019. And in February 2019, almost two years ago, uh, myself and a friend of mine called Isaac were having a conversation with a student. 
Uh, let's call him Bruce. Bruce is a good Australian name. I can't remember the guy's actual name. And we were having a conversation with Bruce about God and about objective morality. You probably know what objective morality means, but just in case you don't, objective morality is the idea that there is an ultimate good and bad, that good and bad is objective. It it doesn't change. Uh, There is something that is concretely good and concretely bad. There is something that is concretely right, something that is concretely wrong. Objective morality says that ultimately there is a standard of good and bad. The opposite of objective morality is subjective morality, and that's the idea that there's no real ultimate good and bad. There's just simply what society determines, or good and bad changes uh, depending on your circumstance, on your culture, uh, on where you live in human history. Bruce was an atheist, and he thought that the belief that believing in God was absolutely ridiculous. He was young, he was very bright. He was surrounded by his friends who were really egging him on, and you could tell that he was enjoying this conversation. He was going to show these stupid Christians uh, just how wrong we were, how stupid we were. And so I was chatting with Bruce, and I said to him, Bruce, where do you think morality comes from? How do we know what is right and wrong? And Bruce replied with a smile on his face, there's no such thing as objective morality. It's up to society. It's up to people to say what is right and wrong. So, I said to him, well, if I stole your wallet right now, would that be right or wrong? Would that be okay for me to steal your wallet? And Bruce said, well, I would not like you to steal my wallet. I would try very hard to get it back. You would be breaking the laws of society and society said that it's not right for you, it's not okay for you to take my wallet, but it wouldn't be objectively wrong for you to do that. Now, at this point, I was a little bit impressed because it's quite rare to find someone uh, this committed to subjective morality. Now, at this point, can you guess what the next question I asked him was? If you guessed Hitler Uh, you're absolutely right. Godwin's Law says that any conversation about morality, especially on the internet, will eventually end up talking about Hitler. And so I asked him, well, Bruce, what about the Holocaust? There, society determined, society at large anyway, determined that if you were Jewish, you did not deserve to live. Was the Holocaust objectively wrong? And Bruce said, Well, I certainly don't think Hitler should have done what he did. I would not have done it if it were me. But it was only subjectively wrong. It's wrong from our perspective, but it wasn't objectively wrong because there's no such thing as objective morality. At this point, Isaac, my my friend, and I looked at each other. We were a bit shocked and honestly a little bit impressed. Here was someone completely committed to the idea of subjective morality. Or so we thought. And we'll come back to Bruce a little bit later. What Bruce was arguing for, to many of us, sounds really extreme. But it is consistent with atheism. In fact, it's the only ultimate consistent position 
to hold on morality, on right and wrong, if you are an atheist, if you do not believe in God. Without God, there is no objective morality. There is only social preference. But there's no ultimate right and wrong. There's only social preference. A few years ago, a guy called Alex Rosenberg, uh, he's a professor at Duke University in the States, he released a book called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. Alex himself is a card-carrying atheist, and the aim of his book was to put forward as clearly and unashamedly as possible what sort of morality atheism provides. Here's how Alex opens up chapter one of his book. It's a series of questions, and I'm going to read them to you with their answers. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else that you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. Anything goes. That lies at the heart of atheist morality. You see, without God, there is no ultimate meaning. And without meaning, there is no morality. Anything goes. And so, Bruce was absolutely right. If there is no God, there is no objective morality. All there is is subjective preference. I don't know if Bruce uh, had read Alex Rosenberg. I suspect he hadn't, uh, but he is lining up perfectly uh, with what Rosenberg puts forward. Now, some atheists have tried to argue for an objective morality, an atheist morality. Uh, People like Sam Harris, who many of you will have heard of and come across, I'm sure, uh, he wrote a book called The Moral Landscape. And in that, he argues that morality can be determined objectively if we define morality as the pursuit of well-being for most people. But that, by its very definition, is not objective. That's, that's not, it's a nice idea, but it's not objective morality. If there's no God, there's no objective truth. There's only personal preference. Well-being is not morality. To bring it back to Hitler, uh, which everyone loves to do when talking about these sorts of things. Hitler understood that he was pursuing the well-being of himself. 
He was pursuing the well-being, according to him, of the German people. He was pursuing the well-being of the Aryan race, as far as he understood. And if there's no God, who are we to say that that was wrong? Hitler was doing what he thought was good. You see, if there's no God, there's no meaning. If there's no meaning, there's no morality. And if there's no morality, there is no justice. I mentioned earlier the terrible things done by religious people, whether it's Islamic terrorism or child abuse. Ultimately, ultimately, only someone who believes in God can objectively condemn those terrible things. Ultimately, you have to believe in God to say that what they did was objectively wrong. You might say it's it's subjectively wrong uh, because society doesn't like it, but if there's no God, then what they did was only subjectively wrong. It wasn't objectively wrong. If there's no God, we may not like, society may not like what those terrible men did, but it cannot objectively say that their actions were right and wrong. And so, the first place that people go to try and define and defend morality outside of God is society. They go outside to society. But ultimately, and the atheists themselves admit this, it doesn't work. It does not provide objective morality. The second place people go to try and find morality, to find out what is right and wrong, is they go inside. They look to their own personal preferences and tastes. Let me take you back to Bruce. Remember, Bruce had just said that the Holocaust, the state-sanctioned murder of millions of people, was personally and socially distasteful, but it wasn't objectively wrong. And I think at this point in the conversation, Bruce was feeling a little bit defensive. I think his friends thought, oh, well, hang on. I'm not so sure I I like that idea about the Holocaust not being objectively wrong. He was feeling a little bit defensive. And so he asked me, he said, how did you vote in the plebiscite? Now, for those of you who don't know, a few years back, Australia held a nationwide vote on whether or not they would legalize same-sex marriage. And the vote went through. And that vote was called the plebiscite. I said that I didn't vote in the plebiscite uh, because I couldn't. I'm not. I wasn't then, and I'm not now, an Australian citizen. So he turned to Isaac, who was Australian, and asked him. And Isaac said something along the lines of, and Isaac uh, was very calm and very respectful uh, and nuanced, and he said that, well, he didn't have a problem with gay people living together, but that Fundamentally, he believed that marriage uh, was defined as two people of two sexes uh, united. That's what marriage was by its very definition. And he did not think that that should be redefined. And so Isaac ultimately voted no in the plebiscite. And as soon as Isaac said that he voted no, Bruce's face changed. He looked at him with absolute disgust. You see, up until this point, Bruce had been jovial. 
He'd been enjoying the debate. He'd been basking in his intellectual consistency. But now he was, he was speechless. He was really, really angry. And I, Bruce's, the, the change in his, in his face, in his body language, was, was so shocking. I said, Bruce, do you think it was objectively wrong for Isaac to vote no? And Bruce briskly replied, yes. And so I repeated myself. It was objectively wrong for Bruce to vote no, for Isaac to vote no, sorry. And Bruce repeated himself, yes. So for Bruce, the Holocaust was subjectively wrong, distasteful perhaps, but not objectively wrong. But Isaac voting against same-sex marriage was objectively wrong. It didn't matter what society says, it was objectively wrong. You see, I suspect that had the uh, plebiscite come out as no, that uh, same-sex marriage hadn't been legalized, that the will of the people had spoken, I'm 99.99% sure Bruce would have been equally as disgusted at Isaac for voting no. You see, Bruce claimed to believe that there was no such thing as objective morality, that society was determ determined what was right and wrong, but what he really believed was that he got to define what was right and wrong. As I said, Australia did vote to legalize same-sex marriage, but if they had voted against it, I am certain that Bruce would have been just as disgusted, as outraged at Isaac's no vote. Because for Bruce, ultimately, his own beliefs determined what was ultimately right and wrong. But of course, that doesn't work either, does it? We can never find objective morality by looking in ourselves, for the exact same reason we can't find objective morality by looking to society. See, what this conversation with Bruce revealed was that for objective morality to exist, we need a third party. We need a judge to determine ultimately what is right and wrong. We need God. We need God to give us laws. We need God to determine what is right and wrong, because in and of ourselves, we can't figure that out, because we all have different tastes, beliefs, personalities. Without God, there is no morality. There is only chaos. If you're watching this evening and you are longing for justice, justice in whatever cause most captures you, ultimately you need God to pursue that justice because without God there's no meaning. Without meaning there is no morality. And without morality there is no justice. What I've tried to do over these last few minutes is show as simply as possible, show as simply as possible that we need God to know what is good. 
in that psalm, uh, that ancient song of God's people uh, that Catherine read to us, we were presented with a picture of God and what God's justice looks like. We are not going to look at that psalm in the same detail that we normally look at a Bible passage here at Uni Church. You'll probably be glad to know this long end of the sermon. But I just want you to notice from that psalm what it is that God values. Who is it that God cares for? Who is it that God provides justice for? I'm going to read um, the last half of Psalm 113 from verse 4 down to the end. I'd love it if you read along with me. Here's what verse 4 says. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Most of us, I assume, believe that the poor should be cared for. Most of us, I assume, believe that the poor, even though they aren't as wealthy, even though they aren't as powerful as princes, have the same intrinsic value as those princes because they are both human beings. They have the same intrinsic value. Most of us, I assume, believe that women, childless or not, are valuable and worthy of dignity and respect. But this idea of lifting up the poor, of protecting the weak, well, that goes against any sort of survival of the fittest notion, doesn't it? Look at what our nation has done to protect the sick and the vulnerable. Why have we done this? Why have we gone into lockdown? Ultimately, we've done this. We've handled this pandemic in this way because at the very core of Western thought is the idea, is the belief that human beings, every single human being, is made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being, no matter how old they are, no matter how weak they are, no matter how intelligent they are, every human being is valuable. Every human being is worthy of dignity and respect because they have been made in the image of God. We in the West value human life, not because of the things that they provide, not because of the strength that they have, but because of who they are in themselves, because of their identity as image bearers, of, in the, as image bearers of God. And most of us, probably all of us watching this, were born and raised in a society that was built on this biblical principle. Most of us believe that every single human being is worthy of dignity and respect. And because that's the air we breathe here in the West, because that's the water that we swim in, lots of us assume, I certainly used to assume, 
that that was the natural way of viewing the world. Because it seemed instinctual to me, because it seemed like instinct, because it was intuitive to me to believe that every human being was worthy of dignity, value, and respect, I thought that's the way everyone in the world thought. Maybe that's what you think, that this is the common position in humanity. But it isn't. It isn't. All you need to do is look at the societies and cultures around the world, societies and cultures that still exist today, societies and cultures that you could visit today if it weren't for lockdown, that do not have the Bible as their foundational moral code, their foundational moral authority. I'm going to give you two examples. Think about the caste system in India. The caste system in India is built upon the idea that human beings, because of their ancestry, have different values uh, from each other. Some human beings are worth more than other human beings. So, if you're born in the Brahmin caste, you are at the top of the social ladder. Everything is open to you. You can progress as, highly, as much and as highly as you like. But if you're born in the Shudras class, you're in the very bottom of the ladder. And if you're born in the Shudras class, you will only ever be a servant or a slave. There's no way for you to climb that ladder. There's no chance of your social standing changing because you're not inherently equal. You're of a different caste. A few years ago, ISIS published a booklet for their soldiers titled, Questions and Answers for Taking Captives and Slaves. You can read that booklet, if you like, online. It's it's pretty horrifying stuff. A lot of it is too horrific for me to read out loud to you this evening. But here's one of the question and answers from that booklet. Is it permissible to sell a female captive? Answer, it is permissible to buy, sell, or gift female captives or slaves, for they are merely property. I am disgusted when I read that. And I'm disgusted when I read that because I believe that God made those women in His image. It doesn't matter how weak they are. It doesn't matter how low in their society their standing is. They are worthy of value, dignity, and respect because they are made in God's image. God values those women. Therefore, so should we. And if you are disgusted when I read that to you, I'm sorry to read that to you. I'm sorry to put that out uh, into the world. If you're disgusted by that, that's because you have been raised in a society, in a culture that used to at least believe the Bible. You've been raised in a society and a culture that was built on biblical principles. You've been raised in a society and a culture that for over 1,000 years has held to the belief that human beings were made in the image of God. 
you've been raised in a society that believed Psalm 113, that God raises the poor and seats them with princes, because God made all of those people in His image, and they're all worthy of dignity and respect. You see, ultimately, where we come from, our origins profoundly affect our value, our meaning. Where we come from gives us meaning. If we were made in the image of God, then every human being is worthy of dignity and respect. But if we arose out of nothing, if we are all cosmic accidents, blood bags with no meaning, who have arisen out of a cycle, a meaningless cycle of the survival of the fittest, then the weak have no ultimate value, do they? The only reason to care for the weak is so that they can serve the strong. If we came from nothing, then our lives mean nothing. You see, we need God to know what is good. It doesn't come instinctively to us. Without God, there's no meaning. Without meaning, there's no morality. And without morality, there's no justice. The amazing thing about Christianity, over and above Judaism, because of course Judaism teaches that men and women were made in the image of God, the amazing thing about Christianity is that it teaches that God didn't simply make us in His image. God came down and bore our image. He came down in our image to rescue us. Psalm 113 uh, paints a picture of God enthroned on high, which He is. But the New Testament tells us that God didn't stay enthroned. He didn't stay up in the heavens. It's simply dispensing morality. He came down and showed us what morality looks like. Jesus Christ came to this earth and taught us not simply to love our neighbor, those who are like us, but He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us not simply to seek forgiveness from God. He told us to forgive others when they sin against us. And of course, even greater than Jesus' moral teaching and His example was His death in our place so that we, human beings made in the image of God, might be reconciled to God, forgiven for all of the ways in which we have failed to live up to God's standard, forgiven for all of the ways in which we have acted wrong, in which we have been immoral. God doesn't simply tell us what is good. He shows us what is good. And even more than that, He promises, the Lord Jesus promised, that one day He would return, that one day we would all stand 
before him. And then he would put everything right. He would judge injustice. He would wipe away the tears of everyone who trusts in him. God is good. Let me ask you, have you trusted in him? We've really only scratched the surface of this important question. Of course, in normal times, uh, we could have chatted about this face-to-face after the service. Uh, We could have met up uh, and chatted about it at length. We can still do that, of course, um, over Zoom, maybe even socially distanced, uh, if that's okay with you and if the guidelines permit it. But we can't do what we would normally do uh, at this part of the service. But if you do have any questions, if you would like to push back on anything uh, that I've said, I would love to hear from you. If you were to fill out our Welcome to Church card, you can find that at at unichur.ch slash welcome. That's a way for you uh, to reach out to me, to tell me, um, ask any questions you have, to tell me why I'm absolutely wrong and that we can't have objective morality uh, without God. I I would love to talk with you about more of these things. Again, we've we've really only scratched the surface. That's what those welcome cards are for. Uh, So please do uh, fill one of those out if you have any other questions, and I will be in touch with you as soon as possible. But that's all we have time for uh, this evening, Uh, so please do pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you made us in your image, that you have caused us to live in a society and a culture that still at the moment gives every human being dignity. Even more than that, Lord God, we thank you that you descended from heaven in the Lord Jesus and provided a way for us to be made right and to enjoy eternity with you. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes to see your goodness, to trust in you and love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we ask all of this in the name of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.